Did you know that you could legally get ketamine mailed directly to your front door? Today on The Integration Conversation, I'll be speaking with Jack Swain, the Director of Clinical Operations at MindBloom. MindBloom is the world's largest, remote-first, 100% telemedicine-based ketamine clinic. Jack's going to tell us about his journey from the healthcare consulting business to the ketamine business. He's going to talk about the clinical trial that MindBloom is in the process of starting, which will be the largest study ever done on the efficacy of ketamine for depression. And of course, we'll talk about how that at-home model might scale to other psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD as those medicines become approved by the FDA. MindBloom is doing so many interesting things that I'm sure that after listening to this interview, many of you will rush to your brokerage accounts to try and buy stock in MindBloom. But what you're going to discover is that you cannot, and this is because MindBloom is not publicly traded. And it turns out that there are tons of companies out there in the psychedelic space doing really interesting things that have a lot of promise that are not available on the public markets. And this is one of the reasons that I decided to start a venture fund focused on psychedelic startups, because I saw cool companies out there like MindBloom showing a lot of promise, doing interesting things that were just not available to an individual investor with a Robinhood account. So if you're like me and you understand that there's a lot of promise in the psychedelic space on the private startup side, and you wanna get exposure to that through a venture vehicle, go to empath.vc, again, that's empath.vc, fill out the contact form there and I will send you more information about the fund that I'm raising. One last thing, if you like these interviews that I do and you wanna see me do more of them, well, help me attract more interesting guests to this platform by growing the reach of the show. That means like and subscribe on the YouTube videos, follow the podcast on Spotify or iTunes, whichever podcast platform you use, follow us on Instagram at The Integration Co., follow me on Twitter at The Real Brom. As we can grow the audience of the show, it will become easier to attract more interesting guests and bring that interesting content to you. All right, with all that out of the way, let's get to the conversation with Jack Swain, the Director of Clinical Operations at MindBloom. Enjoy. All right, everyone, we are here with Jack Swain. He is the Head of Clinical Operations at MindBloom. Jack, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, fun to be here. Awesome. Um, so maybe for those who are not familiar with MindBloom, let's just start off with an overview of the company, if that's possible. Like, what, what is MindBloom? Yeah, of course. So we're a psychedelic medicine company starting with ketamine therapy for anxiety and depression. And so we treat anxiety and depression through a fully telemedicine model. So someone would come to us, take an assessment online to see if they're a fit, connect with a psychiatric clinician. And then if they're a fit, we'll kick them off with a succession ketamine therapy program. So these are designed by leaders in psychiatry and psychedelic medicine. And the goal is to you know, improve the ability of our mental health system to treat people who are in need because there's so much just not, you know, not being delivered by the current psychiatry system. Uh, right. And I mean, if I'm correct, I think that MindBloom is one of the few providers of true, like remote psychedelic medicine, right? I don't think there are really any others in that space. Is that correct? Yeah. There are some, there are some other companies that have popped up recently who are doing the same thing, but we were um, you know, one of the early like consumer brand companies to come out and do that. Um, as we were launching, you know, and started to do research into other providers who were using ketamine therapy, I think I was surprised to learn how many psychiatrists were already doing at, at some small scale at home ketamine therapy. Um, but yeah, in terms of being a telemedicine focused psychedelic medicine company, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're the biggest right now. 
that's very interesting. And I want to talk more about that later. But first, maybe you could talk about like your background. What did you do before MindBloom? How did you get involved in MindBloom? And like, what's the journey sort of been like so far? Yeah, sure. So it's it's probably a combination of standard and non-standard path to, to a startup. Um, so I started my career in technology consulting at Accenture, got my MBA, fell in love with healthcare and worked for a healthcare consulting company called the Chartist Group. Um, and got to work on really cool projects with some of the biggest health systems in the country, like Cleveland Clinic and Michigan Medicine, um, and, and loved the projects and saw just at the highest level how much even the most sophisticated, well-funded health systems really struggle to provide high-quality community community care and increase access and you know reduce costs of care. Um, and then was introduced to Mindbloom through the founder, Dylan, who's one of the, who's a lifelong friend of mine and was, it was kind of a beautiful time where I was looking to get more involved in direct patient care. Um, and he talked to me about this psychedelic medicine company that he was launching called Mindbloom. And I had been interested in psychedelics personally and, you know, seen all the emerging research on psychedelics that was, it was so exciting. And so what better tools they potentially offer for improving community health and mental health care specifically. And so it was um, just a total dream job to be able to help start something like Mindbloom. That's okay. So you were familiar with psychedelics. I guess uh, two questions sort of come to mind from that. Um, one, your background in healthcare consulting, that obviously gave you a view into sort of like the current healthcare model, how much of that knowledge of like the traditional healthcare paradigm sort of carries over into the psychedelic medicine paradigm? Is it like not that different from traditional healthcare? Is it a radical break? Um, I don't know if that's like the right way to phrase the question, but I'm curious, like how much yeah. do, do you think that, yeah, go ahead. I, I think it probably depends on the role that you're playing within, you know, a psychedelic medicine delivery care model. Um, for me, like as, as our head of clinical ops, I think there's a lot of carryover. I'm also, of course, biased because I was in healthcare consulting beforehand. So, of course, I think that it was super relevant to what I'm doing now. Um, but so much around, like one of the first things I did at Mindbloom, so I was our first employee back in June of 2019 and joined at the same time as our medical director, um, Dr. Casey Palios, who's now our science director. And he, like his experience in psychedelics um, psychedelic medicine is incredible. Like he was ran a study on ketamine for depression back in like 2010. Was part of the NYU ketamine for um, end of life cancer anxiety studies at NYU. He's now a principal investigator in the MAPS MDMA for PTSD clinical trials. So his like his his scope of how to use these chemicals for therapeutic benefit is incredible. Um, and so worked directly with him to build out our clinical protocols for our practice. And so I think without that healthcare background, it would have been harder to build those out, harder to work directly with him, um, you know, harder to design a system that's from the start, a care model that's from the start, thinking about how we want to measure outcomes so that we can be continuously improving and demonstrating outcomes, you know, publicly as well, so that we can, you know, continue to make this more effective for people. Um, and then as we build out our clinical model as well and build, build our clinical team, I think a lot of the a lot of my prior projects in healthcare consulting were really transferable to what I'm doing. Okay. And what was it like sort of working with, you said that uh, Dylan was a lifelong friend. So yeah. there's, you know, plenty of uh, advice about not getting into business with friends and family. Like how's that, how's that experience been? 
Yeah, I think we both went in with eyes wide open. Like we both consulted like our other friends and family to say like, hey, do you think this is a good idea? Do you think this is a, you know, disaster? Like, how should we think about this? And I think from the start, we were really open with each other that if, you know, either of us were unhappy or it wasn't, we didn't think it was the right fit that we'd pull the ripcord and no hard feelings, you know, move on with our respective careers. Um, and so, so yeah, so we, we jumped in and I mean, it's, it's definitely been a double-edged sword at times, you know, working with, um, like he's, he's just, uh, I mean, a force, like one of the most impressive people I've ever worked with. Um, but still like getting constructive feedback from like, somebody who you've grown up with, who's been a lifelong buddy was an interesting adjustment at first. Um, yeah. And so, so I think there's, there's definitely been like when you're having, when you're in, you know, contentious situations at work, um, sometimes if it's with your best, your best friend, it's makes it easier. Sometimes it makes it a little more challenging. Um, but I think we've, you know, it's been two years now. So I think we've gotten much better at kind of blending the like friend and coworker relationship to where it's become like just incredible, like as good as I hoped it would be when I started. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely highs and lows of working with, uh, working with a close friend. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Um, but that's interesting. And it's kind of rare to hear that story. So that, that's cool. One question I have, and I don't know that, you know, you're focused more on the clinic side, but maybe you can shed some light on this. You started Mindbloom in 2019-ish, and I assume you guys went out and raised some money. What was it like in 2019 raising money for a company that was doing psychedelic medicine? You know, right now, I think the climate is very different than it was back in 2019. I'm in the process of uh, raising a venture fund that is going to focus on psychedelic medicine. And it seems like it's somewhat accepted, but there are still lots of people that when you hear that that's what you're doing, they're like, what? You know, a lot yeah, of people don't yeah, know, but yeah. I, I'm sure that in 2019, it was even more out there. So like, what was the raising money process like? Did you have a lot of people thinking you guys were crazy or were you did you find it somewhat easy? Yeah, so um, I'll preface by saying that Dylan did an incredible job of shielding the team from getting too deep into fundraising and really just ran the whole process virtually on his own, which again is, is just incredible. But I, I, I know that he had, there were definitely certain investors who were very open to investing in psychedelics and saw this as like a huge opportunity in the future of healthcare. And then there were others who you know, wasn't there, wasn't there bread and butter. Um, and so some people either were, you know, not interested or didn't think they could sell it to the partnership. And so he definitely had to find the right investors who were really excited about what we were doing and excited to partner with us and, you know, continue to advance the psychedelic, you know, revolution. Yeah. It, it is interesting. I mean, I'm sort of going through a similar process now and just the, um, Psychedelics is one of those things where every person that you talk to has like a totally different level of experience with it, right? Which is in contrast to, for example, some sort of like basic tech thing where you talk about investing in tech, everyone has an opinion on it. But um, with psychedelics, it's like some people I talk to, they're like, oh yeah, I am already sold on psychedelics. You just have to sell me on you. And then some people are like, wait, I thought psychedelics were illegal. What? They're being used as medicine. So it's like totally different levels of like awareness and um I guess risk tolerance for lack of a better word. Um, but I guess that's changing as time goes on. Now, when you were raising for Mindbloom initially, was it online at that point or was it, did you have a physical location? No, yeah, like what, what was the plan at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, the plan has always been to move slowly and make sure that 
we are really comfortable with the safety of our model before we kind of start to expand and add more flexibility and freedom to our clients. And so at the start, we had to, in September of 2019, we launched a clinic in Manhattan. And so we were seeing all of our clients in person to start. And so our clients would come into our treatment center, would have their first session overseen by, um, we had both in-person guides at that point and a psychiatric clinician. And then if they were, if they increased their dose for another session in their program, they would come back to the clinic. So we were always observing and right there to support anyone who was starting or changing the medication dose for treatment. And after conducting, so at first we're only seeing maybe a patient a week. Um, And then by the time COVID hit, we were really comfortable with the model. Like we had anti-anxiety meds and like blood pressure meds in at our treatment center, just in case we ever needed to use them and didn't, didn't use them once. Um, So there were no adverse events, like nothing that couldn't be handled by, um, you know, even some of the more like you'll hear like challenging experiences with psychedelics were really easy to bring someone back down from with just a casual conversation. And so when COVID hit and a lot of the regulations on prescribing controlled substances through telemedicine were rolled back, um, we were really comfortable with transitioning to a telemedicine model. And so we tried to emulate the in-person model as closely as we could through telemedicine. So we send all of our clients a, we call it a bloom box that has uh, an eye mask, a blood pressure cuff, a journal. So everything we would have given them in person so that they can ensure that they're safe and comfortable during treatment at home. Um, We also require all of our clients to have a friend or family member who's physically present with them. So, you know, just in case they have a challenging experience or like God forbid a fire alarm goes off in the building or something, there's somebody there to, you know, to help them. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, and then we sandwich that with video, um, like video meetings with their guiding clinician before and after the session. So it's, except for the time that they're in, you know, under the, they're altered from the medication and journaling afterwards, they're have direct access to their guiding clinician. So one thing you mentioned there, you said that during COVID, there were restrictions on prescribing controlled substances over telemedicine that were rolled back. Were those rolled back because of COVID specifically? Yeah. So, yeah. So one is the Ryan Hate Act. It's a, um, it's a DEA requirement from, I think it's like 2008 that was intended to, um, to stop like internet pill mills of people who are prescribing with, you know, no no real medical consultation online. Um, And so a lot's changed in psychiatry since then. Like now you have like audio and video through Zoom, like we're doing now, that's like from a psychiatry perspective, that gives you like nearly as much data as you would have in person. And so the DEA hasn't adjusted those regulations, even though they had a mandate from Trump to do so back in 2017 to roll out a special registration for behavioral health providers um, but anyway, so when COVID hit, yeah, because it was no longer safe to go into, you know, a psychiatrist's office and you could do so much of it by telemedicine, that was rolled back and is suspended through the end of the year. So what happens, first of all, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Um, I guess the obvious question is what happens at the end of the year? Is there a risk that that gets reinstated and then um, businesses like yours are put at risk? Or do you have any insight into that? Yeah, so, and we're 
very, very closely in touch with our, you know, Austin telemedicine attorneys to help us kind of navigate what happens next. And there's a couple bipartisan bills that would allow behavioral health providers to prescribe controlled substances through telemedicine. So there's a chance that one of those is passed. There's also, I mean, hopefully a chance that the DEA rolls out this special registration that they're now three or four years late on rolling out that would allow behavioral health providers to prescribe through telemedicine. Um, so hopefully one of those things happens by the end of the year, but if it doesn't, then yeah, we and you know every other behavioral health provider who's been treating people through telemedicine will have to determine you know, how we proceed, whether that's, you know, establishing like in-person new patient centers or whatever that may be. Interesting. Okay. That, that's, that's a very cool uh, rabbit hole to go down. I might have to do some uh, Googling, put on my, put on my legal hat and uh, read more about that later. Um, Can you sort of walk, you touched a little bit on the actual mind bloom experience. There's this box, but can you maybe go more in depth into like what the actual treatment looks like? Like, is there non-ketamine assisted therapy sessions in conjunction with the ketamine um how many sessions do people normally do like what exactly is the protocol like yeah so we have our programs are six sessions so if i mentioned before like you you start by meeting with your psychiatric clinician and then you have a guide who's there to walk you through every step of the program so they're your one-stop shop for like their coaches um they also provide support and help you navigate your program they are there as your care coordinators to liaise between you and the clinician. So that's kind of your concierge-esque medicine person to help guide you through the program. And so the guide is there with you by video before and after your first session. There's also a integration coaching session that we include in every program that most of our clients do after their second session. Um, our clients also connect with their clinician after their first session to make sure that you know they're safe and adjust their medication dosage if they need to. Um, and then the guide is available to text the client throughout their program. So the guide's checking in before and after sessions to say like, hey, have you, you know, thought about your intentions for this session? Like, have you made progress against your integration plan? Like, do you have any questions for me? Like, how can I, you know, help you get the most out of your treatment? Um, and then our clients also have the ability to add on coaching sessions to their program if that's something that they found really helpful and want more of. Gotcha. So the the guide is sort of the the therapist, and the clinician is the doctor that actually prescribes the ketamine. Is that the right the right way to think about it? Yeah. the The guide is definitely not a therapist. Like we make a definite okay. distinction okay. between right. coaching and therapy. Um, and we actually work with a lot of external therapists as well. Um, so if a client comes to us and has a therapist that they work with that they've have a great relationship and want to continue working with, um, then our program goes really nicely with traditional therapy. Um, and a lot of the therapists we work with are, you know, just, just blown away by how much more material they have to work with and how much progress you can make when the therapy is, you know, combined with this super powerful medicine and ketamine. Oh yeah. I mean, psychedelics are absolutely an accelerant for the progress of standard therapy. Yeah. That's for sure. Uh, uh, that's story, yeah. <laughs> so, um, who so the guides are not therapists so who are the guides and like what sort of training do they have to receive like how, how does one become a guide yeah so our guides are um we hire coaches so people who have experience whether that's um you know health coaching um like other like motivational interviewing um a it's it's amazing how many people have experience with psychedelic integration who have traveled abroad or just you know really, really educated themselves in, these, in this field. So they're 
ready to go when there are opportunities like Mindbloom to make a career of this. Um, so everybody comes to us with coaching experience and then we train up our guides on how to support the Mindbloom clinical model. So they go through uh, you know, a lot of training during onboarding, um, both both like reading up on our processes and protocols and like one-on-one -on -one training with other experienced guides. So by the time they first work with a client, they're totally up on both how to support a psychedelic journey and also like what's required to make sure that our clients are both safe and comfortable when they're doing this at home. Okay. So these are people that maybe have some backgrounds doing psychedelic medicine, maybe are more like life coach type people. And then you sort of do some, a little, at least a little bit of training to make sure everyone's on the same page and kind of knows how to deal with the mind bloom model specifically. Um, is it one when I've talked to the other executives at other psychedelic companies, one of the things that they've all sort of mentioned is that they found it very difficult to hire people that have experience in administering psychedelic medicine. And these are people that they're just trying to hire to run studies. And they say, we have a hard time meeting demand for studies. We can't even imagine how difficult it's going to be once these medicines are actually approved. Do you find that to be the case for you? Has it been difficult to find enough people that have this experience or are there tons of people like beating down your door to become guides? Um, um yeah, there, there's, I've been just blown away at how many really talented people there are out there with coaching experience who are really passionate about psychedelic integration, who are really excited to become guides. I think the, the more challenging, um, you know, capacity for us to build is around psychiatric clinicians. So whether that's psychiatrists or psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners or PAs with psych experience, um, you know, there's a national shortage of mental health providers. And so I think we're fortunate that this is a really exciting new area. There's so much press and, you know, hype around the potential of psychedelics, which I, you know, I think is really justified. And, um, but, but yeah, so that's the, I think that'll be as we continue to scale a bigger challenge is, you know, how do we build a workforce of expert, both psychiat psychiatrists and psychedelic medicine professionals. But the, so the, um, the guides are not the limiting factor. It's more the actual psychiatrists, but what, um, you said the guide has most of the interaction with the patient. So does the patient interact with the psychiatrists often or like what, what level of interaction occurs between them and the patient? Yeah. So there's, um, our guides spend on average about three and a half hours with each client over the course of their program. And our clinicians spend an hour and a half. Um, and so there's, like touch points that are, you know, where we think are the right places to make sure that our clients are like fully prepared and safe throughout their programs. Um, and so it's, it's really this dyad that helps to provide both like the coaching and the facilitation of the program. And also, you know, this, the psychiatry skills to make sure that, you know, the person's having a a, a safe and productive program. Okay. So it's a little bit of both. Yeah. I've had, I've, I have personally not um, been a client of Mindbloom, but I do have a couple of friends who have used it. And one of the things that they all sort of commented on, at least when they first started was, oh, when we go to like schedule our sessions, it seems like there's <clears throat> like, everyone is sort of like booked out for a while. So it's hard to kind of get in very soon. And so I was curious if that was because, you know, a, a shortage of guys yeah, or a shortage you know, of psychiatrists or what. That's a great question. And so the, the reason for that is like, we're, we're, our top priority right now is to work on our wait times is 
we there's just so much latent demand out there for this type of treatment. Um, and so as we've started to scale, you know, and, and, and increased our public presence, we've just been like blown away by how many people are really interested, excited, need this type of treatment, you know, either because they haven't got what they need out of traditional traditional healthcare services like antidepressants or therapy, you know, or they're just really excited about, you know, the potential of psychedelics for healing and, and growth. Um, yeah, and so, COVID has obviously been an accelerant of this as well. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's it's sad, um, but yeah, for so sure. That's, so but you're in the process oh. of scaling up, so those wait times may go down in the future. Yeah, so we so. we've grown quite a bit over the last quarter, um, more than we expected, and so now we're playing a little bit of catch up and making sure that we have the right like recruiting models in place so that we can scale our provider team as quickly as you know our our demand is growing. That makes so, sense. Please, well, please I mean, it's a good problem to have, right? It means you, <laughs> yeah, it, it means you have a lot of people that are interested in the service, which is, you know, one of the best problems you could possibly have as a business. So that's, that's good um, in a way. So I'm curious, you move from the in-person clinic to fully online. Um, obviously, everyone who's into psychedelics has heard of this term set and setting that, you know, the, the place that you're in um, really influences like the outcome of the psychedelic therapy session. So if you go from a model where you have a clinic that is specifically designed to be optimal set and setting to someone's home or wherever they are, which you have no control over, does that negatively impact the experience in any way? And um, just more generally, like what do you think is lost when you move from a clinic to the at-home model, if yeah. anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's more gain than loss moving to the at-home model, which I'm sure is no surprise for you to hear, considering that's our model. Um, but there, there are a lot of people who have, like, are you familiar with white coat syndrome? Uh, like, like people who just get nervous, their blood pressure goes up when they're around doctors or in a doctor's office. Because for a lot of people, you know, so much of when they're with a doctor, it's because something's wrong or they're getting bad news. And so there's, for a lot of people, a lot of anxiety around medical professionals. Um, and so we found even when we were, when we had our treatment center in Manhattan, and we, we take everyone's blood pressure before treatment, just because um, ketamine can elevate blood pressure and, and, and heart rate. And so we make sure that they're in a safe place before they start. And it was amazing how many people, you know, are just kind of like nervous because they're in the doctor's office in a, in a new setting. Um, we, you know, have to have them breathe and kind of take some time to get back to a safe, a safe level to start. Um, and so at home, you know, you have, I mean, you say no control, but we, we can do a lot of like education on how to make your home a really comfortable setting. So you can be in your bed with, um, you know, the lights low and we provide uh, music and meditations through our app so that our clients have like, you know, the, the kind of, you know, we're not reinventing anything here, the kind of music and, and, you know, inspirational meditations that would be really helpful for any psychedelic experience. And so by, yeah, and so by kind of coaching them on how to create a comfortable setting and also coaching that friend or family member who's there with them on how to best support them, um, I think we can create even a more comfortable setting. Like where we fall short is since we do require a friend or family member to be there, you know, for some people who are struggling, they may not have that person who can be there with them. And right now that's a gap in our ability to treat them. And so down the road, you know, we're thinking about how we can have, you know, people who could come to your home to support you during this session or 
having treatment centers like for people who are more interested in that in-person experience. Um, but, but yeah, so I, th I think there are trade-offs, but on the whole that we've seen that our clients really enjoy being able to do this at home. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly some advantages, right? And obviously if you don't live in an area that has a clinic, obviously, you know, Mindbloom is the, the only option. So that's a huge improvement for those people, I guess, you know, and I've, I've not done psychedelics in any sort of clinical setting. So I'm just sort of speculating here, but, um, you mentioned white coat syndrome and I can totally see that, right? You're in some sterile doctor's office with a guy literally in a white coat probably doesn't make you very calm, but you look at, for example, um, field trip health. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Yeah. You see pictures of their clinics and they, they look yeah, nothing beautiful. like a doctor's office, right? They're like these fantastic, beautifully designed, like, like Soho house esque type places. Um, and I, and I think that when you read about how psychedelics have, have sort of been used historically, oftentimes it's in the context of like this ritual where you go to like a new place to do it, right? It's like you not, not only is the psychedelic experience itself a break from reality, but like you might go out to like the woods or you might go to a cabin or you go to some place or, or, you know, at an office or like a nice clinical retreat center where, so even, I feel like even if you make your home into like a nice comfortable place, it's still like your home. And so if, um, if the goal is to sort of like break you free from the routine and your like your normal reality, staying in your home maybe has some downsides for some people. But um, obviously if you're able to deliver this medicine to people, it's probably better than not delivering it to them, right? So I think like that's obviously a win. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess you sort of emphasize your protocol is sort of like with the, the eye mask and the music on, right? So you're sort of creating the set and setting there, it doesn't so much matter like what's going on around the patient in, in a way. Is yeah, that sort of the right way to think about it? Yeah, I think so. And ket ketamine is, I mean, I don't want to, you know, disregard what's going on around the patient. Like that's, of course, like super important as well that they go into the experience, you know, comfortable, not stressed out, like feeling healthy. Um, but um, what was I going to say? Oh, with and ketamine like differently than some other psychedelics is a very internal introspective experience. And so it lasts, you know, depending on the person, you know, the peak dissociative experience will last anywhere from like 30 to 60 minutes. Unlike other psychedelics, like, you know, psilocybin, MDMA, where that's a much longer time horizon. Um, and so, yeah, so you're really having that experience just internally with your eye mask. Yeah. And then, we set aside time for the the client to journal after and then connect with the guide to, you know, debrief. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think there's a lot and a lot more we could do and, and will do around helping clients to really make their, create that ritual right at home. That's, that's really cool. Um, so maybe to piggyback off of that, you know, I always look at these, this whole podcast is about psychedelics from like the investing in business perspective and in business, you always think about like competitive advantages. Um, you know, ketamine at the end of the day, it's, you know, a uh, commodity molecule, right? Yeah. Um, and if, especially if we get to the point where multiple companies are offering at home ketamine services, how do you differentiate your offerings, right? It's it's somewhat easier to see how you can differentiate if you're doing like an in-person clinic because it's like, well, my clinic is like better looking than your clinic, right? But but if it's all within the patient's home, how do you avoid it just becoming a race to the bottom and patients choosing whoever will do give you the ketamine cheap the most cheaply? Yeah, well, I think if I think if ketamine is a commodity medicine and it's really all about the medicine, then yeah, our models exactly as you said, it'll be a race to the bottom. Um, we have 
very high conviction that how you facilitate the session is an incredibly important part of the treatment. Um, and so having, and that's, we see from our clients over and over again, how important the guide is to their program. So, and you, you know, you mentioned at some point when there are other providers in the space, like there already are. So there are definitely gonna be, you know, more and more providers popping up in the space. Um, and so the way that we see, you know, uh, mind bloom differentiating is so on, in addition to the guide and the medication, we also have programs. So we wanna be your, you know, go-to partner for helping with, you know, healing and behavioral change. So whether that's like help with anxiety or depression or PTSD or alcohol or substance use or getting over, you know, a breakup or dealing with grief, like really taking, you know, the, the best approaches for getting, getting through those like potentially traumatic life experiences and combining them with psychedelic medicine. And so as we grow, we've also been collecting outcomes data on all of our clients from day one. So we have the ability to see as we make changes to programs or as clients go through different programs, what's most effective for helping create optimal mental health outcomes. And so I think as we grow, we'll just be able to learn so much and evolve these programs to where if you come to MindBloom, you know you're getting the best in class treatment. You know, it's, it's a trusted brand. You know, you're gonna be safe. You know that you, you know, maybe have a friend who's gone through treatment and has had a phenomenal experience and is in a different place than they were when they started. So I think like creating trust and having that experience in best in class product is so important. And we think will be a strong differentiator over, you know, over just price when you're really putting your mental health in the hands of a provider. Right. And is the idea that um, there's sort of an ongoing relationship built with the client? So I know you said there's six ketamine sessions, but the idea is that even after that sixth ketamine session is complete, the patient maybe comes back to the guide every once in a while to check in, or if something new happens in their life that they need help with, you sort of continue that relationship over the long term. Is that kind of the, the idea as well? Yeah, you know, I, I think it really depends on the person and what they're trying to get out of treatment. I mean, ideally, you know, someone is in a phenomenal place after treatment and it's not something you need on an ongoing basis. But yeah, if you hit a dip in the road later, then you'll say like, Hey, mind bloom was so helpful when I was getting over, you know, the loss of my, of a parent. And now I'm dealing with a breakup or I'm just like completely underwater with work stress and I need help getting, getting through this experience. And so they'll know that they can come back to mind bloom and have great support there. Um, and then for people who have like, you know, chronic anxiety or depression, then yeah, that's something that, that may be, you know, an ongoing treatment to where it's not like an SSRI, you know, not like an antidepressant that you're taking every day, but maybe it's something where you're planning a session once a month or, you know, once every couple of weeks, just so that you can, you know, maintain that level of relief from anxiety or depression. That's, that's really important to functioning at a high level. Gotcha. So there is some level of custom customizability there. Um, yeah, for sure. That's very cool. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, people often underestimate the impact that brands can have, right? So if MindBloom does indeed become like the Apple or Nike of ketamine, then, you know, people will go to you even when there may be like cheaper options available because you just provide that better experience. So I think, I think that totally makes sense. Um, and you have that first mover advantage for them, you know, for the most part, which is like often very useful. So <laughs> I, yeah. I, I like it. We're hoping we can um, learn a lot and yeah, just I, like if we don't have 
radically better programs a year from now than we do now with the amount of client feedback and data that we're getting, then we've done something mm -hmm. like really wrong. Right. And I think that a lot of people don't necessarily uh, appreciate the power that, um, sort of like the data advantage that can that businesses can accrue if they actually take advantage of the data that they collect. And so by starting early, by having like well-trained technical data science people that can actually draw some insights from that data, you can definitely find yourselves probably way ahead of the curve of some like new pop-up company or some like small, more independent operator. So yeah. I can see it. Yeah, it makes there's sense. There's always, yeah, there's always a, you know, really smart leadership team that could pop up and copy what we're doing and then you know, start to iterate on it themselves, but you know, they still wouldn't have the data. Right. So, yeah. And, and the, I mean, a, you know, a massive provider network and, you know, team of people who have been doing this and learning a ton and, you know, becoming experts in their craft who can help just really, you know, really accelerate how, how much we can learn and, and improve. For sure. Um, well, speaking of data, I know that you are working on some sort of study. Is that correct? Yes. You're, you're, doing, you're running clinical trial. Can you talk about that study? What What is it? What is your level of involvement in it? Uh, yeah. So, um, so not a clinical trial, but a study. So what we're doing is a retrospective chart review. So where we'll take the outcomes data that we've collected over, you know, a year now. Um, of our telemedicine model and and be able to you know publish a paper that demonstrates to to the field and hopefully is really additive to the field that shows just how powerful this you know remote ketamine therapy model can be. And so to start, we've partnered with um, the chair and vice chair of psychiatry at Houston Methodist, who who are going to serve as an advisor and the principal investigator on the study. Um, and so we'll, you know, hand over our, our data to them and they, they've helped us with study design as well so that we can take the data that we've collected on, you know, hundreds or depending on how big we want the study to be, could be, you know, over a thousand, an end of over a thousand to, you know, show with a high level of statistical significance how powerful this is for treatment. And so the kind of the rationale for doing this is we've used, um, We've used like industry standard scales for measuring anxiety and depression symptoms, the PHQ-9 and GAD-7. And so we collect an assessment from our clients before they start their program, mid-program, and after four sessions. Um, and so we've seen to date of our clients with moderate or severe depression, 88% report clinically significant improvement in depression after four sessions. So it's, yeah, it's like, you know, we've, we've checked, we've checked the data. It's like hard to believe. Um, and it's, it's just amazing how like, much promise this shows relative to something like an antidepressant where there's, depending on the study, you know, one in three at best 50, 50 chance that you see benefit typically after four to six weeks. Um, and, you know, 50% of people report a negative unwanted side effect from their antidepressants and 95% of our clients report no side effects. So it's just like such a superior treatment for those who are you know, suffering from anxiety and depression. And so we're really excited to publish that and show how this model can not only bring down cost relative to in-person ketamine treatment, but also increase access to people who, as you mentioned earlier, aren't near a clinic um, and provide like dramatically better outcomes than traditional mental health treatments. 
Yeah, well, 88% reporting a statistically significant improvement on those two different scales is uh, pretty serious. I guess my only question is that that is collected not too long after the completion of their last session, right? So like, how long does this last? Are people coming back depressed again six months later? Um, do you have any idea about like remission or sorry, not remission, but relapse rates yeah, yeah. for like a yeah, better word? That's, that's a great question. Um, and so we're collecting that data now. They're from clinical studies on ketamine. You see that after um, a single administration of, and the clinical studies on ketamine are almost all using IV. Um, and so after a single administration of IV ketamine, you see days to weeks of, um, of improvement in symptoms. And after a series of treatments, you'll see anywhere from weeks to months. And so we've seen that from just anecdotally from our clients as well, like some won't come back for months and then they come back and say, Hey, you know, I've kind of dipped and symptoms have come back and so I'm ready to start treatment and some stay on more of a, you know, every other week, once a month regimen, um, cause they've found that that's what's best for symptom improvement. So it really does vary from person to person. Um, but that's like certainly like a follow-on study that we plan to do later to show how effective this is, uh, you know, the longevity and durability yeah. of treatment. It's a great question. Out of curiosity, I don't know if you're able to share this, but I know the standard protocol is like six sessions. Do you know what percentage of your clients sort of like either come back after that or stay on once a month if you're able to maybe shed some light into that? Yeah, we see. Just so um, curious. Yeah, so, so far, 40% of our clients have come back at some point for a follow-on program. And then I don't have a breakdown of like what okay. the follow on, you whether like how that you know pie chart splits up okay. between people who are doing right. it like once a week, once a month, every other month, whatever that may be. Okay. So the main the main difference in this study versus other ketamine studies is one, you have a massive sample size, right? Like n over a thousand, like you said. Two, this is probably the only ketamine study that is using data collected from people that are using ketamine in their own homes, I'd imagine. And then three, you're using. Um, the lozenges? I can never pronounce that word correctly. Uh, yeah, we, we actually use... <laughs> Instead of IV or whatever it is. Yeah, we actually use rapid dissolve tablets. And so rapid it's, dissolve it's, tablets. it's, it's okay. like a lozenge, but it dissolves a lot quicker. Um, and we've, we've found our, our clients prefer those. There actually is another study of at-home use of ketamine. It's a, it's a great paper from Phil Wilson and Jennifer Dorr that it's a multi-site study that I think it's an N of about 250, which may, may be the largest study of psychedelic medicine to date. I'm, I don't know of a, a larger one. Um, and so they use a combination of uh, sublingual trochees and intramuscular treatments. And there's uh, their, the, the patients in the study are using ketamine at home as well and get um, the great results. And so we'll... Yeah, so cool. we're excited to show like a fully sublingual at-home model. Yeah, it's neat that you're able to actually add something like accretive and not just a copycat study, right? Yeah. You're doing something that's like new in some way. That's that's very cool. And another um, thing, if you'll allow me to nerd out for yeah, a second. Sure. Um, another thing that I'm really excited about with our data is so something that is like anecdotally known in, you know, in the ketamine therapy community is that the level of dissociation that someone experiences during treatment is a huge mediator of clinical benefit. Um, and we cite a study on our website that was a meta-analysis of multiple studies and shows that the strongest indicator of clinical benefit is level of dissociation. 
And so we, in the same symptom assessment, we also ask our clients to rate their level of dissociation. And so we use a few questions that are ketamine relevant from a standard uh, psychedelic dissociative experience, uh, psychedelic experiences scale. Um, and so we can see how dissociated, dissociated someone felt. And so we can map, um, so we've mapped the self-reported dissociation to the uh, percentage of people who see a uh, significant improvement in their symptoms. And it's like a straight near, like it's a super strong positive correlation. And so that's really helpful too, as we're working with our clients, not just to say like, Hey, what's the optimal dose that should be standardized across everyone we treat, but to help, you know, empower our clinicians to make decisions based on level of dissociation as well, because we've proven out with our data that that is such a strong predictor of clinical benefit. Wow, that's cool. And like you said, this is maybe, there's no standard clinical scale for dissociation. So this is sort of like a new sort of scale that you, set of questions that you have developed. Is that correct? Uh, we actually pulled a few that um, our science director, Dr. Palias, chose a few questions from a psychedelic dissociative uh, dissociative experiences scale. And so we've used, so we didn't create them. We just pulled from kind of a commonly used psychedelic dissociation scale. Uh, okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about uh, psychedelics a little bit more broadly. I know we don't have a ton of time left, but ketamine, obviously the only one that's available at the moment, but going forward, do you see mind bloom branching out into psilocybin, LSD, other drugs as those become available? And do you have any ideas on like what timelines look like for that? Yeah, and that, that's absolutely our plan. Like we have, you know, from the start, we want to be a psychedelic medicine company that's helping to increase access to the most effective mental health treatments, which we believe right now, based on the data, are, are psychedelics. And so as, you know, I mentioned our um, science director is has experience in clinical studies with psilocybin at NYU and is a principal investigator in the MAPS MDMA study. Um, and so we have, you know, a great team to help us build out our protocols to use those medicines once they become available. Um, and so, you know, it seems like, you know, a couple years, few years out until there's FDA approval for psilocybin and MDMA to be used clinically in the U.S. And so how we use them will kind of both depend on how the FDA lays out, you know, REMS, like safety requirements for using these, these drugs, um, and then there's another element too of how like a lot of states are kind of taking it upon themselves to legalize use of these medicines. So we, I think how, how we incorporate them depends on the FDA and evolving regulation, but we certainly plan to incorporate them as, as soon as we're able. So you think maybe something like Oregon's measure 109 might allow you to at least start providing service in Oregon anyway? before the FDA approves it, do you think? Or are you guys maybe more just waiting on FDA approval before making any moves? Um, TBD, um, I think the, we have, yeah, well, our general counsel and, you know, outside counsel as well are, um, we'll be working on, you know, what a, a prudent way to move forward will be. Like, we don't want to, we don't want to be, be too aggressive in one space if that suddenly, like, you know, hinders our ability to like work with insurers or, you know, work with a malpractice insurance provider or anything like that. Um, so, but, but assuming that we see really low risk to the business and, you know, moving forward based on state regulations, it's something that we would consider. 
You just mentioned something that made me think of a question that I was planning to ask you, but forgot. Um, insurance. So, ketamine for the, the current ketamine treatment is not covered by insurance. Is that correct? I, I don't think there are really any ketamine products except for the Johnson and Johnson nasal spray that are covered by insurance. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I'm. I can't. I can't say definitively whether there are no insurers sure. who are covering, you know, any ketamine practices. Um, there's also but the so part one of, is not right. Yeah, so we provide our we provide our clients with a, a super bill, so essentially an invoice of the clinical services they've received, and so they can submit that to insurance for out of network reimbursement. Um, and that's like most insurers aren't going to cover the ketamine, the, like the ketamine medication, um, but will reimbursed for part of the psychiatric services, like, you know, the initial consultation, the med management consultation with your psychiatric clinician during the program. So that, that can, you know, help, help offset the cost of treatment a bit. Interesting. So they'll, they'll reimburse the consultation, but not the medicine itself. I see. Yeah. It's, That's it's, interesting. Cause yeah. Have you seen any that. insurers reimburse the medicine itself that you're aware of or no? Um, for generic ketamine, like not spravato, um, I, I don't, I don't know. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That, that's kind of what I had heard, but I, I wasn't sure. It's too bad. Do you, do you think that will change at any point? Like, are these insurance companies going to catch on or does it have to basically get FDA approved specifically for depression before or anxiety or whatever, before the insurance companies will actually reimburse it? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic. It's really hard for me to, maybe this is like too much faith and humanity, but it's really hard for me to believe that something that shows this much promise and like generic ketamine is cheap. And so for, to be able to use like an off-label generic drug that gets benefits that are so much stronger than an antidepressant and have, have fewer side effects and can work right away. It's really hard for me to believe that down the road insurers are not pushing their clients to are pushing their members to, you know, use these treatments once they have a lot more faith that they're not going to be, you know, the first mover who steps, steps in mud and, you know, makes make some really bad coverage decision. But especially like once, I think there's a lot of opportunity for the ROI to insurers to be borne out specifically with um, like really high risk clients. Like if you're preventing ER or hospital admits, or if we can show, um, as, as studies already have, you know, small in studies that this is really powerful for like substance use treatment. I mean, imagine if you could pay a thousand bucks for a mind bloom program instead of tens of thousands of dollars for residential or for a residential like substance use program, like that's a, that's a no brainer ROI for a payer. So I, I don't think that FDA approval will be required. Um, but I don't know, maybe I'm naive. So it's really just a matter of the insurance companies looking at the data, looking at the studies and um, becoming convinced. And maybe these studies that you're running out of MindBloom might help be some of the tipping points for um, getting these insurers to pay. Yeah, that's the hope um, too. That, that's a major objective of this study is to start to pave the way for insurance coverage. Yeah, that would be huge because it's, you know, unfortunately... It, it's expensive. And I think even if you're someone who has like a pretty good income, ket ketamine therapy just in general is like, it's not cheap, you know, yeah. hundreds of dollars, if not thousands. And um, uh, there's obviously a huge segment of the population for whom that is absolutely just like out of the question, you know, 
most people cannot just drop that kind of cash. And so, and I think insurance really is like the key in getting, once insurance covers it, then many more people have access to it. And then sort of like, I think that is what will really accelerate public opinion changing on psychedelics, right? If you can just get like the general population using this stuff on a regular basis because insurance pays for it. Yeah. Um, it, it will be interesting. I'm also very interested to see how the at-home model scales to things like psilocybin and you know stronger psychedelics. We talked about how ketamine is kind of easy to do at home because it's shorter. It's it doesn't take that long. It's more introspective. You know, it's not like you're looking around, uh, looking at you know the um, psychedelic hallucinations, the walls melting, all that stuff. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that carries over and if it's just as easy to take from the clinic to the home as, as ketamine is. Um, so a lot of interesting things up ahead, I think. Yeah. I, th I think ketamine is definitely much more conducive to the in-home in model, you know, without someone who's physically present with you. Um, yeah. If, if you're, if you're talking about a eight hour experience, um, I think that's, you know, at least at first will definitely require will likely require somebody to be physically present with you. So I think as we adopt those, we'll certainly design a protocol that's more appropriate for those medicines, whether that's sending someone to your home or you know, having treatment centers in, across the country. Um, so, so that's all stuff that's, I mean, which is what could be more exciting to figure out. Yeah. Well, hey, I know we only have a few more minutes and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, what's next for Mindbloom? Like, what are, what are you looking forward to? What should people know about the company? Um, what should they keep on their radar? Yeah, I mean, really excited too. Right now we're in um, 12 states and hope to be able to, hope to provide access to like over three quarters of the population by the end of the year. Um, so, so keep an eye out for us to come to your state. Um, and then... I think we're really excited to continue to grow as the as regulation, you know, and research allows us to include more psychedelics to make, you know, help help people regardless of their need um, down the road. Right, and because this is a business and investing podcast, I have to ask um, financially, what's next? Are you raising another round? Are you going to be IPOing like many other psychedelics companies have? Do you, can you give us any? Yeah, I don't think we'll be IPOing those things anytime soon. I think we okay. we are very um, the uh, one requirement that we don't budge on when we're recruiting is people who are mission obsessed, people who like truly believe that this is the future of mental health care, and are excited to not just like build a company in this, but really like invest your time into creating something that could material improve the um you know consciousness and well-being of of society and so i think if yeah if we did like ipo um like what, what, what would we do next we'll never find something that we care as much about as we do as we do mind right so, so you guys you're in it you're staying you're staying private in it for the long run, not worried about like short-term valuations and that sort of thing, which I think is good. You know, there's a lot of hype and bullshit in this space, sadly. And uh, it's good to see companies that are, you know, focused on the long run and the mission. It's yeah, very cool. I think what we'll be raising again soon, um, just to, you know, fuel like the growth that we have, have really strong indications from yeah. demand. Well, the market that's, wants that's it. good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm my uh, my fund will be raised soon. Maybe I'll get a chance to, uh, you know, get involved in that raise. Maybe if uh, if the stars yeah, align, that'd be very interesting. I love I love what you guys are doing. Um, all right, Jack. Well, I think we're pretty much at the end of our time. Where can people find you guys online? Um, and if there's anything else you want to leave the listeners with, you know, the floor is yours. 
Yeah, no, I should I should have had something canned up better here. Um, <laughs> we're at mymoon.com. Yeah, come check us out. For sure. All right, well, Jack, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Brown. You have a good rest of the day. You too.